1: Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the European Parliament elections, Nigel Farage's new Brexit party, which is gaining momentum, and what the established parties are hoping to do about it. Plus, we'll be looking at Sanji Javid's speech on crime this week, and whether the Home Secretary is taking the right actions, as well as helping his leadership hopes. I'm delighted to be joined by our Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard, public policy correspondent Helen Worrell, columnist Robert Shrimsley, and deputy editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then subscribe to all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. We also do like a good positive review. Westminster has been in recess this week, but campaigning is well under a for the European Parliament elections on May the 23rd, those elections that Britain wasn't supposed to have, with scant hope of a Brexit deal passing through that Parliament by the end of May, the UK will have to elect seventy three MEPs. For the Conservative and Labour parties, it's not a particularly happy prospect. But for the smaller insurgents such as the Independent Group, the Corps of UKIP and the Brexit Party, it could be a unique opportunity. Smaranda so Green, if we just begin by looking at these elections, this is almost three years since the UK voted to leave the EU and nobody's particularly happy about the prospect of having to elect MEPs potentially for another five years years but the EU has made clear that if we don't want to crash out at the end of May then we've got to have MEPs. We did elect a majority of UKIP MEPs back in 2014 who have now all nearly left the party and the pose is showing it's going to be quite the interesting race.
2: Yes well you say that nobody wants to have these elections but actually there are some groups who see it as an opportunity and that's includes Nigel Farage, who with his newly launched Brexit party is hoping to clean up in the way that his UKIP party did in 2014 when he was its leader and it topped the poll and gave the Conservative party the fright of their life and probably led to Cameron holding the referendum. So it's sort of a moment for him. It's also potentially a moment for the forces of Remain, who are at the moment conspicuously failing to come up with a powerful joint campaign for the elections to counteract a pro-Brexit message from a resurgent farage, but within them, There's a splintering of forces between the Lib Dems, the Tigs, the Greens, who tend to do well in European elections, most famously in 1989. But they do seem to see it as at least a chance to mobilise all these people who have been marching, signing petitions, who remain very angry about Brexit, etc. But the problem is, they seem to think that because it's a proportional representation election they can all kind of reinforce each other's messages unfortunately under the system in which the election is held they will actually be in competition for votes and if they can't reach a threshold which is in some regions very high indeed they won't actually get any representation now of course they may not be sitting these MEPs or they may not be sitting for very long anyway if we do Brexit And so there are some who think it doesn't matter what the tally of MEPs are, and there are others who are seeing this as a massive wasted opportunity to have a proxy run of another Brexit referendum.
1: So this campaign looks as if it's probably going to be a rerun of the 2016 referendum with the pro-EU forces squaring off against the anti-EU forces. Robert Shimsey, let's just begin with the pro-EU force, the forces of Remain that Miranda was talking about here. Doing electoral pact is always complicated in the UK due to the electoral commission and spending limits and airtime and all that sort of thing. But it strikes me as quite bizarre that between them, the Teagues, the Lib Dems and the Green Party couldn't at least do some non-aggression pact to not stand in certain parts of the country to give the Remain candidates the best possible chance of winning as Many MPs as possible, which would, even if it doesn't actually impact what happens to Brexit, would send a clear
3: message about where the country's intentions are. Yeah, and I think, in fact, this is almost a microcosm of what's bringing on in Parliament, where the forces of varying degrees of Remain can't get their act together and they're all engaged in their own little worldview instead of the bigger worldview. So the Greens don't want to do a pact because they have a different economic critique. And it's also useful for them at a time when environmentalism is is on the up. It's useful for them to raise their profile. It's interesting that you still call them the TIGs because, of course, they've rebranded themselves as Change UK, but the name isn't sticking. So they are hoping to use these elections as a way of cementing themselves as a political party, gaining some useful momentum and projecting themselves more fully onto the political stage. The Lib Dems, I think, are prepared to do some kind of pact and would have agreed to something. But the opportunity has been denied them. And I think it's a terrible, terrible mistake. You could almost forgive them for failing to reach an agreement where they had a full non-aggression pact and stood under some bigger umbrella because time was very short it wasn't a simple thing to do i can see how that ran away from them but the refusal to even to divvy up the country so that they run in different regions and maximize their chance of winning seats is a terrible mistake because in the end if the brexit party come out with the largest number of seats that's the only headline you're going to hear and that's the thing that is going to influence conservatives and other MPs. And I'm afraid, as far as Change UK goes, the only conclusion I have reached is that they're doing this because they're actually not very good. They haven't got what they need sufficient political strategy and vision to understand that at this moment, Remain is the cause, not their own political identity. And they've dropped the ball on this, and I think it's going to cost their cause significantly. And you
1: always do find that in British politics when people try to do alliances, that when they look at the prospects
3: of their party, that tends to trump the wider cause. And then. Sorry, just, I mean, from the moment that the Tigs were created, they said straight away, we're not doing an alliance with the Liberal Democrats. But the truth is, they have to reach some kind of accommodation with the Liberal Democrats. They have to do this because they need the organisation and they're competing for the same space. And the refusal to do so, until such time as they recruit six of the greatest political brains in the country, people who the Whole public is better rally around is self indulgent and self defeating, and we do know that there were senior Lib Dems
1: like Vince Cable who wanted that path, but they were rebuffed by the taste. Jim Picard. There is also one more big force of Remain we haven't mentioned which is the Labour Party who are actually polling quite well in these elections and on some metrics look set to come first or come second and it's a slightly difficult one for Labour because their MEPs are unabashed Remainers all them want to stay in the EU they don't want to leave but of course we know that Labour's party policy is not quite that so how is it going to pan out for Labour given these other Remain forces are there as well?
4: Yeah, when you just said that Labour was a Remain party, I couldn't tell if you were being ironic, because as we all know, Labour is pursuing a softer version of Brexit than the Conservative government, but they are still... Very much a Brexit party, even if they have given off strong whiffs of wanting a confirmatory referendum on whatever emerges if it's a Tory deal. And yes, it's not as bad a position as as the Tories have got for Labour because they could still come first or second in these elections, either behind or ahead of the Brexit party. But yes, it's an awkward moment for them because it does force them to crystallise this position of what the hell is their Brexit policy And for all their protestations that their position is incredibly clear, and it should be very simple for us idiots to understand, they have been doing a lot of prevarication and a lot of hedging their bets. And yes, Seb is right that the MEPs are saying to me, yep, we're going in there very clearly saying that we're a Remain party and we want to stay in the EU. And the leadership has the opposite message. And by the time this podcast comes out it might be a little bit clearer but it's a little bit of an awkward situation for Corbyn to find himself in.
2: It's really interesting this because it forms part of a negative loop with what Robert was talking about, the phenomenon of the pro-Remain parties failing to coalesce around a joint position at least even if they can't run joint candidates because even the people who are campaigning for a so-called people's vote are nervous of backing any such coming together of the Remain forces unless they've also got the Labour Party on board for it, because otherwise you lose your proxy referendum because you end up with a set of European elections where you do conspicuously badly and you don't even get the 48% that you got in the 2016 re- referendum. So once again, we're back to a position where actually the outcome of Brexit in any form is totally dependent on what the Labour Party does and, and which way it jumps.
4: If I could go back a stage to those talks between the Lib Dems and the TIGs or Change UK, I mean, it's correct for you guys to have said that Vince Cable certainly was pushing reasonably hard for some kind of alliance. I think one of the complicated factors that we haven't mentioned is that they have a leadership election themselves coming up probably in beginning May, I believe, it's only a few weeks away. And the different contenders for that, there are three or four front runners. And when you talk to them privately, they all have very different ideas about how much of a merger there should be, or maybe there shouldn't be any merger at all. And it's a really interesting sort of battle of the brands, I guess, between these new upstarts with no history at all. And the Liberal Democrats saying, well, the Liberals have been around for a century. Why would we throw away this brand? And the Tigs are saying to them, well, because it's toxic after the coalition and the Lib Dems are refusing to accept that. And you've got a real sort of tension of not just egos but also of strategies.
2: I think that's true, but it's also this isn't really about whether you should merge the two parties. This is about whether when you're small minor parties can you cooperate usefully on the issue of the day.
1: Let's now jump over to the forces of Brexit, Robert. So we've got the fact of the Conservative Party who, out of all these people we've talked about, really, really don't want to hold these European elections because their MEPs are mostly Brexit-supporting and don't want to return to Brussels, although minus three of the 18, the rest are all standing again to try and complete the job, as they describe it. But there's going to be no real effort from Conservative HQ. They don't have the money. They don't have the message. So it's really just trying to get this thing over done as quickly as possible and when you speak to people in CCHQ and number 10 they just say they're not going to happen because we're going to pass a deal by then and if you say well in fact you're probably not going to pass
3: a deal then they sort of just shrug their shoulders and say it's going to be very bad for the party. Yeah I mean Jim talked about the problems that the Labour Party has defining its message. These are nothing compared with the problems faced by the Conservative Party. They have absolutely no message to offer the electorate in these European elections they have no European message to offer other than let's get on with Brexit which they've been the government and failed to do they have no other policies they want to showcase this is literally an exercise in rolling yourself up into a ball and hoping that you survive the kicking you're going to get I mean that is what it boils down to I think there is a danger on the Brexit side for everybody who is prepared to engage in some form of Brexit but not the hardest form which is that One thing that Nigel Farage will achieve, I think, in these elections, unless they go spectacularly wrong for him, which no one thinks they're going to, is making himself the arbiter of what is Brexit. So what is going on, I think, in these elections is two different things. You have the fight to define Brexit, which the Brexit Party will take the lead on, and which, of course, it has many, many sympathisers within the Conservative Party. And on the other side, the forces of Remain, what is their message? I think it's pro-referendum, but it's also sort of pro-Remain. So what you have to do is crystallise these two things, and they're not actually competing visions. One is probably a referendum, and one is the hardest Brexit. But I think that the Conservative Party and the general supporters of Brexit are in terrible trouble because of the recreation of the Brexit Party. I think it's a massive long-term problem for them. I absolutely agree with that. And one veteran Conservative MEP I spoke to this week was
1: saying we could face our worst ever national election result in 200 years. I'm sure there's a lot of expectations management going on with that. So when they don't do quite that badly, then it doesn't seem like a total disaster. But, you know, some people are predicting they could get as low as four MEPs, given the 18 they have at the moment. it's that
3: low since Napoleon.
1: <laughs> Jim, let's just talk about the Brexit party very briefly. So this is Nigel Farage's new vehicle. It was officially created back in January when UKIP brought Tommy Robinson on board as an advisor, and the party very much went towards the far right. We'll come on to that in a moment, but with the Brexit party for a moment, they had this launch last week that was very slick, with Nigel Farage at the helm again, and they announced Anunziata Reese mogg sister of Jacob, as their star candidate, and they've also announced Richard Tice, the US sceptic businessman, and John Longworth, the former head of the British Chamber of Commerce, and they're going to have another five coming on Tuesday, and they're going to go around the country and do that as they go go through here. As Robert said, it is potentially quite a potent thing because it's UKIP without all of the baggage. It's a very clear, straightforward message. Vote for us if you want Brexit. doesn't matter what Brexit is, just we are the Brexit party. And we saw these extraordinary two polls this week that said they could, in fact, win the European elections.
4: Yeah, I mean, it feels a bit to me as if the old UKIP has transmogrified into something more akin to the BNP back in the day. And the Brexit party is very similar to what UKIP used to be with Nigel Farage, obviously the former UKIP leader in charge, and offering an incredibly simple message, a very alluring message to an awful lot of Leave voters who don't really understand or have no sympathy for the reasons why we're still in the EU and still having European elections three years after the referendum. And the thing to remember about UKIP back in 2014 when they topped those European polls is that even back then, Even the people that voted for them didn't really want them in Downing Street or think they should be running the country. They didn't see Nigel Farage as a prime minister in waiting. Farage himself never pretended that he was a prime minister in waiting. It was always about sending out a message to elites, sending a message to an unlistening Westminster bubble. And that's what's going to happen again. And what's quite interesting, um, at the same time, I had the the pleasure or unpleasure of This morning going to UKIP's launch of their European election campaign and you can see Gerald Batten looking very rattled as he watches his former colleague Farage sort of rise up in the polls and UKIP is languishing at about 6% and Farage took a pop at them today saying they've destroyed the party by flirting with extremism and lurching to the right. And I think it's fair to say that Farage is probably quite happy having UKIP there, slightly to the right of him, more unpleasant because it allows himself to present himself as a sort of relatively
3: mainstream political force. I think you should treat people to the other Nazis that were present at the UKIP event. I mean, it sounded like a gathering of the Adams family. (laughs)
4: Yeah, it wasn't a very nice event, I have to be honest. When you went back a few years to UKIP and when they were on a roll in the run up to the 2015 election and the 2014 European elections, they had this sort of 1940s Colonel vibe to them with the Kipperton tweed jackets. It was very jolly. You could say. Jolly, very English, slightly unpleasant tones of nativism, but nothing like the UKIP that we have in front of us today. And this event was notable that Batten who's obviously been criticised for employing Tommy Robinson as an advisor. He brought on stage these two controversial characters who look very similar. They're both kind of portly, middle-aged men with beards who are very, very aggressive. One, I believe, goes by the name of Count... Donkila? Donkila. The, thank you. And the other is uh, Sarkanov. of... Or something. I, I really don't even want to know these characters' names. The point is that they are basically internet trolls. One of them famously taught his dog has to do a Nazi salute. The other one famously, inverted commas, joked that he wouldn't rape Jess Phillips. These are the people that UKIP is now consorting with. And I think personally it is one of the reasons that it explains why they're doing pretty badly in the polls right now.
2: All this is true. And it was a kind of repellent spectacle. But you have to realise, I think, that the games that everyone's going to be playing on results night, if we do in fact hold these elections, adding up the bar charts of these different parties on either side of the Brexit divide, whatever small percentage the nasty new UKIP managed to get still helps the Farage argument, you know, because you can say, as the Conservative Party rather shamelessly been doing since the 2017 election about the Labour Party manifesto, however many percent of the electorate actually voted for parties that back Brexit. So in a sense, having these nutcase outriders isn't, that bad for Farage because he can take votes from the disgruntled Tories and you can mop up the loonies. I,
4: I totally agree with you that what will happen on the election night is that we will all add up the different sides of the ledger. And the really interesting thing is where people are going to put Labour because this week I yes, said absolutely. on Twitter that there are now seventy-one percent of the public are saying they back a pro-Brexit party, and immediately I was sort of met with this uprising of people saying, "Hang on a second, Labour's
3: an anti-Brexit party. What are you talking about?" But, but the thing I, I just think one point we have to remember is that. These are going to be the first European elections in Britain that anybody has ever cared about, apart from Brexiters. So one of the reasons why UKIP of old did so well last time is because the anti-EU forces mobilised, and this was the perfect election in which to mobilise. What we've now got in Britain for the first time is a meaningful pro-European force of voters, a significant number of voters. We're a bit sceptical of the six million figure on the petition, but something around that number of people who are really sufficiently motivated to get out and vote for a pro EU party. And I think that is going to make Labour have to define its position fairly
1: tightly. I agree with that and this brings the final point Miranda which is really what is going to define these elections which is turnout because normally European elections are held on the same day as local elections. They won't be this time we've got the local elections on the 2nd of May which also by the way are set to be a very bad night for the Conservatives and probably a good night for Labour and maybe the Lib Dems. But these European elections are going to be held a couple of weeks later and within you've got the Conservatives Conservatives barely campaigning. We've seen reports of constituency association chairmen saying they're not going to campaign. Reports of even Conservative MPs saying they would vote for the Brexit party in that case. So really what it's going to come down to is what Robert said. Do the motivated Remainers, or as the economists called them last week, the (laughs) radicalised Remainers, do they actually come out and vote for whichever party it is? And I think we can be pretty sure that the Brexiters will, because we saw in the 2014 European elections, they are happy to get out and make their point heard. And Farage has been doing all these rallies with all these people there. The Remainers have to do the same.
2: Well, it feels like, doesn't it, that turnout will be surprisingly high for a European election. And of course, the 2016 referendum was astonishingly high, you know, 70 odd percent. So if the highly motivated on both sides of the divide do come out and vote, then it won't be like a normal European set of European elections at all. I agree with Robert about the highly motivated Remainers. As we've discussed, they will not quite know where to put their vote, which is a huge issue. But actually, those of a cheerful disposition inside the Lib Dems that I spoke to this week pointed out that if you look at, for example, the Israeli elections, which is also done under PR, if you've got a range of parties who have a sort of similar message, there may be voters who, for example can't bear the Lib Dems, but would vote TIG, or can't bear the Greens, but would vote TIG, or can't bear someone in the TIGs because they shouldn't have let the Tories in, but will vote Lib Dem. And actually, they sort of say, well, there is a way in which by having a range of Remainy parties, you do at least give a home to lots of different Remainy votes. But we are back once again to the idea of, is it more important to be able to add up some bar charts on the night or to actually secure MEPs? Because UKIP, if they win the most MEPs, will be seen as the winners.
4: And the only other point I'd make on that is that our colleague John Byrne Murdoch, who's a data reporter, did a very good piece today, examining how under the Dehontes form of PR system, because the Greens and Lib Dems and Change UK aren't working together under some kind of alliance umbrella, they're going to end up with far fewer MEPs probably than they would otherwise. They're
3: half the seats didn't he, basically?
4: I think instead of 17, they would end up with... Was it six or seven or something? It was a drastic difference. And and obviously this is based on
3: polls. It's not an accurate forecast of the night, but it still tells a story. I think one thing that's interesting, the message that's come out from the Labour Party of late, which I've been very struck by, is you have to vote Labour to stop the Brexit Party winning. It's a very interesting message they're choosing. They're running on essentially conventional grounds, which is don't let the nasties win. We're the best way of stopping them, which is probably true. I think Labour will be quite happy not to fight this on too European an agenda, which is going to be an interesting puzzle for them. So let's move away
1: from Brexit just for once. Early this week Sajid Javid gave a big speech, as these things are called, on knife crime. The Home Secretary looked back to his upbringing on one of Britain's most dangerous streets and said that he could have ended up in a life of crime. Instead, he's now in charge of all things to do with the police service, but his highly emotive pitch was to tackle the underlying causes of Britain's recent spike in violent crime, but it was also a not-so-subtle pitch for the Conservative Party leadership. So, Helen Warren, you are at this speech and in the great. Bastion of Sajid Javid speeches. How did this one rate for you and what was he trying to get across?
5: Well, it was very unusual. It was in a former pickle factory in East London. It was achingly hip. There were muffins biscuits, tea and coffee served beforehand, which is unknown in the history of my attendance of home office speeches. So I could tell that something was definitely up. And Sajid gave an incredibly personal speech. So it wasn't just talking about knife crime and, you know, the causes and possible solutions. He talked a lot about his background and how what his advisors like to call his own lived experiences on Britain's most deprived street, give him an understanding of that is actually relevant to policy and to the life of people both experiencing crime and perpetrating crime today he talked about his children how they're teenagers he said he waited up anxiously wondering where they were at night couldn't go to sleep till they come home you know it was very much this is my brief this is my policy expertise but look this is also me the man the father etc
1: and it's a very particular pitch that mr javid has because there are very few ethnic minorities on the conservative front benches but particularly those with his backstory and he's very keen to use that backstory now where he wasn't in the past in the past he tried to move away from it but as he's getting closer towards the potential leadership contest we're hearing more and more about his upbringing which is something you also wrote about in an excellent ft weekend magazine front
5: Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely trying to find ways of making his backstory relevant. And one of the things that lots of people say about him is he has this sort of phenomenal narrative that he doesn't necessarily use as best he could. And also, he hasn't managed to convert that into what some people call a front story. So I think this was his effort to do that. And one of the really interesting things about Sajid, I think, is that he is very unusual in the Conservative Party to have someone of this ethnic background, as you say. And he does use that, I think, in very interesting ways. So, for instance he launched in this speech a very very strong defence of stop and search and said stop and search saves lives which is partly a sort of attack on Theresa May's policies which were to rapidly scale back stop and search and one of the things he said is you know I know that people from ethnic minority communities say that they are often unfairly targeted by stop and search but let's face it they are also unfairly targeted by knife crime and if you want to cut down on one you have to bring up the other and he actually said very firmly if stop and search numbers drop to low this could create a culture of immunity so he's absolutely not shying away from quite controversial issues about how you know law enforcement bodies interact with those from the community that he came from himself
1: I thought the speech was fascinating, Miranda Green, because of the positioning that Mr Javid is trying to do here. Because as Helen was just saying, a lot of the stuff he was talking about was a direct attack on Theresa May. When she made him Home Secretary following the Windrush scandal last year, it wasn't because she wanted him in that job. It was because she had no choice, because Amber Rudd had to resign following that whole scandal. She was later cleared of any involvement to do with the Windrush Farrago. But Mr Javid has been carefully distancing himself from what Mrs May did in the Home Office. And this was very overt in the message he was trying to get across as Helen was saying it was not subtle in the slightest. And you can clearly see where he wants to paint himself in the upcoming leadership race.
2: Correct. And as Helen said, it's very interesting the way that he's now trying to use his background to explain his politics. Whereas, for example, Amber Rudd, following Mrs Mayer's Home Secretary, probably couldn't have got away with talking about stop and search in the same way, you know, with his childhood he's able to address it. I mean, it's actually quite new labour, that sort of idea. The idea that you best protect vulnerable, poor communities in deprived areas where perhaps the police may be seen as being heavy-handed by having very active policing. So you're sticking up for ordinary people who live in those difficult areas. So it's really interesting to hear him echo that tough on crime it'll be interesting to see whether he goes into the tough on causes of crime sector as well but with such an impact because the thing about the stop and search is it's incredibly popular with the Tory grassroots who have seen limiting stop and search powers as a big mistake of maize and of course Boris Johnson talks about it whenever he's given the chance but Sajid Javid's got the credibility to talk about it in this different way.
5: Yeah, I mean, one thing I would just add to that is that politically, Sajid Javid has painted himself in the past as a sort of Thatcherite. But one of the really astonishing things in his party conference speech last year was he talked about being tough on crime and the causes of crime, not exactly in those words, but that was very much his message, you know, seeing crime as a public health issue. And suddenly, those in the audience were sitting there thinking, this isn't the heir to Thatcher, this is the heir to Blair, which is a very interesting and quite sort of radical change of perspective.
1: So I wanted to come on to the meat of what he talked about in terms of the policy here, because really, ever since the 2017 election, the narrative about crime and policing has been damaging the Conservative Party, because following the Manchester bombing, attack, Labour aggressively went on the attack about police cuts and said that austerity was to blame for this and I think a lot of posters have said that is one of the reasons the Conservatives failed to get a majority was that Labour managed to get a lot of running on this basis that cuts in public services are the reason we're seeing the rise in things in crime and so over the last two years over that period, that's the narrative that's taken hold. What does the Home Office under Mr Minister Javid intend to do about it and what do you think of their ideas?
5: Well I mean they've made quite a lot of different suggestions. One of them is emboldening police, giving them much greater powers in stop and search. And, you know, we don't know whether or not Jav is going to be able to do that. But that's definitely what he's going down the route of trying to strengthen police powers. He's set up this new thing that he calls a data lab within the Home Office, which is essentially a sort of form of predictive policing. It's using statistics about past events to try and help prevent crime and do more proactive interventions he's also sort of drip feeding more money all the time, sort of small amounts into policing to sort of help make very, very specific targeted pots to tackle knife crime. But the problem is that as police leaders have consistently pointed out, these small amounts of 10 million here, 50 million there are actually not going to make the difference that's needed. Police budgets were cut by a fifth after austerity the result was a loss of around 20,000 frontline police officers which equates to about 15% of the whole force. I think what a lot of the police leaders are saying is until you start to see numbers come back up to closer to what they were in 2010-2011 you're not going to see really big differences on the street.
1: And it's all such a a mark difference, Miranda, from Theresa May, you can remember those very aggressive speeches at the Police Federation when she was Home Secretary and saying that crime is falling even as police numbers are falling because you're or being forced to do your job better. And, you know, some people had said at that point, well, actually, you had to... Give a space for more structural issues to be developed, which again is what Mr. Javid is talking about here. So both for him politically and personally, it's a very interesting space he's in there because if he does manage to get the sort of big funds that um, Helen was talking about and address this issue, that will go some way to helping the Conservatives come the next election. What that will be if he gets this wrong, however, he may well be blamed in the same way Mrs. May was blamed in 2017.
2: He may, but I think as well as comparing the two politicians. The Saj, let's call him that, I suppose. Have a few. His official name. His official name and Mrs. May. You also have to compare the agenda as it feels in 2019 to how the agenda felt in 2010-11 because when those cuts were first going through and when all of the Blairites actually were applauding Mrs May taking on the police federation because it was such a sort of Blairite thing to do to confront the producer interest of the public services as it's known in the jargon but now of course what you see is that the consequences of cuts particularly at the local authority level where they've been most brutal are being seen in social problems that you then have to start dealing with in a more constructive way so in a way he's kind of reaping the whirlwind in policy terms and of course so are the victims of these crimes we should say so I mean it's as much about where we are in the cycle of cuts and their consequences as it is about the two personalities but you're right he could benefit from that and you know the fact that he's able to talk in this interesting way about his unique life story that's brought him via banking to the cabinet but from very very humble beginnings you know two bedroom flat above a shop in a rough area of Bristol. This is really not comparable to the life story of most of the other senior Tory politicians that we've become used to in the the last few years. It's almost as if he could be a sort of John Major figure in the sense of giving people the the idea that he understands people's everyday lives, although you would hope for his sake that he doesn't end the same way as John Major. But, I mean, there is that tradition inside Toryism as well, which maybe he can recapture after the Etonian years
1: And having spent a fair amount of time listening and watching when you did your magazine piece, Helen, you going out with Mr Javid as he went round the country. One of the things he's often criticised for by Conservative MPs is for being a bit wooden, a bit robotic. He's one of the people, along with Jeremy Hunt, who's labelled as one of the TITS, the trees are in trousers, because they are you know, not so great at projecting an image in it. <laughs>
2: That's a... so damning.
1: I'll let our listeners decide that. Um, <laughs> in a way that they're not very good at projecting a narrative or a bold vision the way your Boris Johnson might be, for example. But then other people have said that he's doing bet you know i heard that mr javid addressed the social justice caucus which is ian duncan smith's group of about 50 mps and both jeremy hunt and sajid javid have spoken to that in the past couple of weeks and people who were in the room told me that jeremy hunt was awful as they said he was very wooden but then mr javid i think probably trailing the kind of stuff in the speech felt that he was much better and you know one mp said to me i felt like i saw his real personality for the first time so is he changing in his persona as we're looking towards the race to succeed mrs may
5: Well, I think he is. And his aides have admitted very openly he is having help and advice on his public speaking. The first time I ever saw him give a sort of big speech as Home Secretary, it was actually so halting and so bad, I thought the auto cue had broken. And I have to say that earlier this week, it was very, very different. Actually, I thought, you know, he's still not the most charismatic speaker, but he was a lot more fluent, and he talks with great passion. And I think there's definitely a sense that he is Understanding more where his own experiences can help to sort of capture public imagination and get people on his side.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that very much. I haven't been watching him as closely as Helen has, but he did used to have this awful kind of robotic delivery. And if he's working on that, there's no shame in that. Most people in politics have to be taught to, do, you know, acquire some of the necessary skills. And, you know, I just think the fact that he can say genuinely, there's a kind of mean streets background, as well as the less mean streets of Deutsche Bank, then it's all to his advantage. Actually, I would say slightly earlier in his stint at the Home Office, when he was put in to clear up the mess around Windrush. Also, I found it very powerful when he talked about his own family's experiences of racism. There's a sense in which he can actually deliver some truths that might not be as easy to listen to, to the Tory tribe from the mouths of another cabinet minister. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Jim, Helen, Miranda and Robert for joining us. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed what you've heard and would like to see more FT journalism, then you can find our latest subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Caroline Grady. Until next time, thanks for listening.